Well, happy Father's Day if that wasn't said enough. Um, I'm absolutely excited to share um, God's word with you guys. Um, but before that, um, I want to start off with a little bit of trivia. When I say trivia, it means like it has absolutely no daily use in your life whatsoever. So um, if you've hung out with me a couple of times, you realize that one of my favorite things in this world are comic books and superheroes. So it will be sort of in that area, and it does have something to do with the message. So please bear with me. Um, see, we know that Clark Kent is Superman. Bruce Wayne is Batman. <laughs> Spoilers, I'm sorry. Um, Peter Parker is Spider-Man, and Tony Stark is the most amazing superhero ever, Iron Man. Um, but how about these people? Edward Nigma. Anybody know? Okay, Adrian, you can't answer anymore. <laughs> but he is. He is the Riddler. But we don't know him as Edward Nigma. We prefer to know him as the Riddler. How about this one? Oswald Chesterfield Cobblepot. Perfect, yeah. So this penguin. Wow, you guys actually know this. I guess it's not trivia anymore. Um, this one. Dr. Pamela Lillian Isley. <laughs> Adrian, you can't answer. I'm telling you right now. Okay, yeah, Poison Ivy. You kind of see where this is going. Last one. If I pronounce his last name the way it's supposed to be pronounced, it would be a dead giveaway. Dr. Victor Freeze is Dr. Freeze. <laughs> so we all know these people as certain names, but I just show you what their names were before they were doc like Mr. Freeze, before they were Poison Ivy. That's called an alter ego. It's not just superheroes that have alter egos, but villains too. But it is very rare that we study villains like immensely and intensely as we do the heroes. But we, what we can't deny is that you know, they play a very integral role in our stories. Who would Batman be without the Joker? Or Superman without Lex Luthor? Spider-Man without Green Goblin? Like, it wouldn't be an as amazing story if they didn't have such intricate and like, very interesting villains. And so today, I just want to talk about this, uh, a superhero story of sorts, more of an origin story. If you're familiar with origin stories, it's kind of like Batman Begins, where they show how everything happened, all the key plot points and everything, they introduce these things. So we find ourselves in Genesis 3, specifically verses 1 to 15, and then um, 20 to 27. So it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. So you know all these women, right? Like how they are with their husbands. Um, who was with her? <laughs> who was with her? And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and thus you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now fast forward to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has now become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And may God let us see a portrait, a beautiful portrait of him that makes him beautiful in our lives again. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful occasion where we remember our fathers. But most of all, may we remember the Father, our Heavenly Father, Lord God. May you just reveal yourself to us, Lord God. May you be real in our lives. May you be in this place. In your name we pray, amen. See, the title of that little chapter is called The Fall. That is where man has fallen for the very first time. So I decided to title this message as Breaking the Fall, A Tale of Two Fathers. I want to start off by, this is going to be like a character study. We're going to look at every single character in this chapter. And I personally want to start with the villain, just because of who I am. I'm very interested and very curious about how the bad guys are in the movies. Like, funny story, when I was a kid, the first time I ever went to Disneyland, as a little kid, the character I wanted to take a picture with the most, and my mom remembers this like vividly, it's not the Disney princesses, it's not the princess, it's not them. The one character I really wanted a picture with was Jafar, of all people. Because I thought like, you know, it was kind of unfair how he lost, because like, you know, he's a master sorcerer, and then like, you know, this little guy like beat him. But um, that's beside the point. That's why I want to start with the villain. And the villain of the story goes by a lot of names. I like to call, refer to him throughout this message as the father of the fallen. See, one of his alter egos is um, Lucifer. See, in Isaiah and in literature, they always talk about Lucifer as being immensely beautiful, like really good looking or very attractive. So is it any wonder that when he uses like all of his weapons, the things that he uses against us are also enticing? Is that any surprise? Like we look to Genesis 3, 6, and it says, so when the woman saw 
that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. See, this shows our vain and self-satisfying nature. Like we're always looking for what it is that appeals to us the most. What's the most attractive to us? And the thing is, the downfall of our vanity, the downfall of always chasing after aesthetics is pride. That's it. That's the bottom line. That's, <laughs> that's our downfall. And that was Lucifer's downfall. Like, you know, he was created by God to be the most beautiful angel ever. But that wasn't enough. It's never enough. It's never enough to be good at something. You have to be the best. It's not enough to be the best. Other people have to be worse than you. Another alter ego that um, our villain goes by is the father of lies. See, first it was Lucifer, now it's the father of lies. See, Jesus in the New Testament, he was speaking to a couple of Jews about the condition of their hearts. And this is what it says in John 8, 43 to 44. Why do you not understand what I say? This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Um, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So that's in the New Testament, not in the passage that we talked about, but it is there too. And it's kind of interesting. Even the chapter itself starts off with the villain. It doesn't start off by talking about God or talking about the people. It opens up, the very first verse is about the villain. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say ye shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, ye shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Wait a second, hold on, Speedy Gonzalez. Like, that's not exactly what God said in Genesis 2. So if you look back, a chapter before, Oh, no, I have it there. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it says in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, one chapter before this story, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It doesn't say anything about not touching it now, does it? See, in Genesis 3, 4 to 5, But a serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's funny how the devil projects his own desires so that it appeals to us too. Because to be like God, that was what the devil wanted in, like originally. That's what caused it cause his downfall. And see, all of his lies, 
by being the father of lies, it's all designed to do one thing. It's designed to destroy. And that, is, that actually leads me to one of his other alter egos, which is the divider or the destroyer. See, that's a pretty, it's a pretty mean like name, right? But destroyer of what? Well, in a word, relationships. See, um, let's take a look back at Genesis 3, 8 to 13. Um, you clearly see how the devil goes in and like destroys relationships specifically. It says, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard a sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. It's funny how he breaks relationships, right? Like all the pieces are right there. All the pieces that he needs is us. See, the way he breaks a relationship, you can't break a relationship with yourself. You have to be in a relationship with someone else. And that's how he breaks that relationship. He uses you against yourselves. And when he broke this relationship in this passage, there's two kinds of relationships that he broke in that very moment. Our relationship with others and our relationship with God. See, that moment, he severed us from the very, the most important relationship of all time. See, back then, God walked alongside of us. Like, that's what it was. Like, that's how he designed it to be. He walked alongside of us. We heard his voice. As clearly as you hear my voice right now, that's how we listen to God. That's how we talk to God. So God didn't lie when he said these people were going to die if they eat that fruit. We did, in fact, die. He wasn't lying. But specifically, our hearts died that moment. That moment, we lost our first love. Instead of being naturally inclined to draw near to God, our hearts became callous. And we developed this new affection for the things of this world, the things this world has to offer. And that's, that's this villain's main agenda. That's his evil master plan to keep us separated from God's designed, intended love for us, to keep our hearts dead. See, we look at, um, look at 1 John 2.16. For all that is in this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. At this point, it's a pretty grim story, right? It's not a happy story at all. But thankfully, thank God, this isn't where the story ends. See, the story is not about fear. It's not about defeat. The story is about victory, a better and perfect master plan. The point of this isn't solely to reveal 
how sinister and how terrible the devil, the villain is. But it's for us to better appreciate our hero by seeing how beautiful and powerful God truly is. And so now we look to the hero of this story, the second father, the heavenly father. First, I want to just say, the villain clothed himself with pride. That was one of his main things. But our hero, God, he was draped in humility. If you look to Philippians 2, 6, 11, we talk about this verse all the time here at CCF. Um, I can't think of a better verse to illustrate a better picture of God's humility. See, in Philippians 2, 6, 11, it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The exact opposite of what the devil did. He thought being like God was an achievement, something to be achieved, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, when Jesus died on the cross, he redefined what winning meant. It was a painful process, extremely painful. But that makes sense. Because if you're not fighting for something, it wouldn't be painful. See, he was fighting for something, something very important and very close to his heart. In that moment, when he received all those lashes, when he carried that cross, he was fighting for us. See, the villain, <laughs> he arms himself with lies. Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay. See, the villain came to divide and destroy. Christ came as our rebuilder and our restorer. Sorry, I'm like, okay, there you go. <laughs> the villain came to divide and destroy. Christ came as our rebuilder and restorer. So it says in Romans 5, 10, and 11, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, while we were enemies, by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. See, when we want to look at a story like this, all God has done, it's kind of undeniable that he is the hero of this, of this story. He's the main character. That he is the hero in the Father's master plan for our rescue. See, this fact is actually made blatantly more clear in this other, um, this other Bible that I tend to use when I teach Bible study. The Rosemead Kids 
know of this. They know the Jesus Storybook Bible. That's what you go through. It's a children's Bible that has all these wonderful stories about the Bible, but it always points it back to Jesus. And this is where I realized, where was Jesus in this entire story? So if you just, uh, would you humor me for a little bit of story time? This story is called The Terrible Lie. And it goes like this. So Adam and Eve lived happily together in their beautiful new home. And everything was perfect for a while. Until the day when everything went wrong. See, God had a horrible enemy, and his name was Satan. Satan had once been the most beautiful angel, but he didn't want to be just an angel. He wanted to be God. He grew proud and evil and full of hate, and God had to send him out of heaven. Satan was seething with anger and looking for a way to hurt God. He wanted to stop God's plan to stop this love story right there. So he disguised himself as a snake and waited in the garden. Now God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me and then death and sadness and tears will come. See, God knew if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. They would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. See, as soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered silently up to Eve and said, does God really love you? If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Just trust me, the serpent whispered. You don't need God. One small taste, and that's all. And you'll be happier than anything you could ever dream of. So Eve picked the fruit and ate some. And Adam ate some too. And a terrible lie came into the world. It would never leave. It would live in every human heart, whispering to every one of God's children, God doesn't love me. And it wasn't a dream. It was a nightmare. A dove flew from Adam's hand. A deer darted in the thicket. It was as if they were frightened by something. A chill was in the air. Something strange was happening. They had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong, and they didn't want anyone to see them. So they hid. Later that evening, God was taking his walk. He called to them, children. So usually Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him. But this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. Where are you, God called. Hiding, said Adam. We're afraid of you. Did you eat of the fruit I told you not to eat? God asked them. Adam said, well, Eve made me do it. <laughs> what have you done, God asked. Eve said, the serpent made me do it, because it's never anyone's fault, right? Um, and terrible pain came into God's heart. His children hadn't just broken the one rule. They had broken God's heart. 
They had broken their wonderful relationship with him, and now he knew everything else would break. God's creation would start to unravel and come undone and go wrong. From now on, everything would die, even though it was all supposed to last forever. You see, sin had come into God's perfect world and would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him and hiding in the dark. Their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave the garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. Well, in another story, it would be all over and that would have been the end. But not in this story. God loved his children too much to let the story end there. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a plan, a magnificent dream. One day he would get his children back. One day he would make the world their perfect home again. And one day he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle against snake. I'll get rid of sin and the darkness and the sadness you let in here. I'm coming back for you. And he would. One day, God himself would come back for us. See, when we read this story, it's pretty clear that God's the main character. But we just can't help it. We can't help but frantically look for our part in this story. See, in everyday life, we choose to live as if we were the heroes, as if we were the main characters, as if God was like our sidekick. We go about our day sprinkling a dash of Jesus everywhere we see fit. We want to do the heavy lifting. We forget that it's already been done. I don't want to bother God with my problems, you know. I better take care of them myself. So where are we in this story? You know, it's kind of funny. Like, when we think that we're the main characters of this story, that we're the heroes, it's like, say you were cast in the new Transformers movie as one of the extras running away from an explosion, and you're in there for, like, two seconds. And then on release day, you call all your family and friends, and then you tell them, hey, let's go watch Transformers, because this movie's about me. That's how ridiculous it is to say that these stories are about us. We're not the heroes. Far from it. 
We're Adam and Eve. We're the damsels in distress. We're Lois Lane, Gwen Stacy, Mary Jane Watson, Aquaman, like. <laughs> Sorry, Angela, I know you love Aquaman. <laughs> Just had to say that. If I were an Adam and Eve situation, this is something I always hear all the time whenever we talk about this story. If I were an Adam and Eve situation, it would have ended differently. I wouldn't have eaten that apple. You know, I would have just been happy, you know, being with God, hearing his voice, walking with him, talking with him. Gotta say, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't end differently if you were there. Because we were, they were the perfect representations of who we are. See, they're partaking of the fruit, like actually going for it, shows how easily we choose the things of this world over who God is, over who Jesus is. Is that not an accurate picture of who we are? So when we took that fruit, when we first disobeyed God, what happened to us? Well, first of all, our hearts died. Kind of talked about that earlier on. See, our intended affection for God died and our affections for this world came to be. There's a lot of them. I say affections because there's a lot of them. The reason why there's a lot of them is because we jump from one to another. We're never fully satisfied with whatever we get. It's only ever appealing when we're striving for it. But once we achieve it, it doesn't hold up its promises. It's all a lie. We're never satisfied. That's why we jump to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing. The second thing that happened was we realized we were naked. We started coming up with new ways to cover ourselves. And I think it says in Genesis 3-7, then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Can you kind of get the picture of like sewing leaves together to cover yourself up? Like how ridiculous that would have looked? See, this is a perfect picture of how we desire, we have this desire to save ourselves. We know we messed up. That's why we have to look for something to cover ourselves with. See, the desire to save ourselves from this point became natural. We turn to this term that we use in Bible study called self-salvation projects. These are the things we use to fulfill ourselves, you know, to cover our guilt, cover our shame, in hopes of making ourselves more presentable, more acceptable, whether it's to society or whether it's to God. We never want them to see how broken we are, how unsatisfied we are. But God is good. He, he is so good. He sees our futile efforts, because that's what they are, useless efforts. And he says, let me give you something better. So in Genesis 3.21, he says, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, you couldn't get skin off of trees like you would leaves, right? Like skin didn't grow on trees. 
and they weren't as feeble as fig leaves. Imagine leather. In that moment, since God couldn't take this from a tree, he took it from an animal. You can't just ask an animal for its skin, right? You have to kill it. It's not going to give it willingly. That's exactly what God did. In that moment, God had to shed blood so he could cover Adam and Eve's guilt. See, later on, the Heavenly Father would shed the blood of another innocent lamb so we can be clothed of our guilt, our sin, our shame. In John 1.29, it says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, all these stories, we look at it, and we can see how it points to Jesus now. But usually when we read the Bible, we have this tendency to not look for Jesus. We look for, what am I supposed to do? You know, I have to have the same faith as David or the same faith as Abraham. I have to sacrifice my son like Abraham. Like, we look for things to do. And we've been going through this series at our Young Adults Bible Study on one-way love, a book by this pastor named Tullian Chavagin. And there's this one section in his book that sums up how we should look at the Bible. It says, the Bible is one long story of God meeting our rebellion with his rescue, our sin with his salvation, our guilt with his grace, our badness with his goodness. The overwhelming focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, the work of the redeemer, which means that the Bible is not a recipe book for Christian living. It's a revelation book of who Jesus is, the answer to our unchristian living. We are not the heroes. We can't save ourselves. We can't save others. We are infinitely incapable of fulfilling the demands of sin, God's demands. We're incapable of covering our shame, of redeeming ourselves. See, in this situation, we need an unfailing hero to defeat an unrelenting villain. So by breaking the fall, now we're falling up. See, the villain uses beauty to hide his empty promises. The hero's humility bears true power. The villain feeds us nothing but lies. The hero declares truth in our lives. The villain came to divide, destroy. The father sent his son to rebuild and restore us to himself. See, this story, the whole Bible actually, is the story of a father winning back his rebellious children. And that's the purpose of grace, to win back our lost and dead hearts. It makes Christ beautiful to us again. 
infinitely more beautiful than anything this world has to offer. What's crazy, too, is that he already showed us how it's going to end in the beginning. In Genesis 3.15, you look back, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, in that passage, he's talking about Jesus. This offspring by the woman, after years and years of waiting, finally comes in and rescues us. The father already declared his rescue plan his future victory while we were still in the very beginning. And now we can partake of his victory. We can share and savor this moment with him. And that's the happy ending that we have. So in the last part of this passage, it says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out of his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. See, the Father didn't want us to gain eternal life through disobedience yet again, but through the obedience of his Son, Jesus. Instead of looking to this tree to eat of its fruit, he says, look at the tree on Calvary. If you want to see like kind of how, what his obedience, what that looked like, Christ obeying to the point of death. There's this quote that I got from a movie, which is a totally non-Christian movie, but I feel like it illustrates really well what it looks like to become weak. Now, a staple of the superhero mythology is there's a superhero and there's the alter ego. Batman is actually Bruce Wayne, Spider-Man is actually Peter Parker, when that character wakes up in the morning, he's Peter Parker. He has to put on a costume to become Spider-Man. And it is in that characteristic, Superman stands alone. Superman didn't become Superman. Superman was born Superman. When Superman wakes up in the morning, he's Superman. His alter ego is Clark Kent. His outfit with a big red S, that's the blanket he was wrapped in as a baby when the Kents found him. Those are his clothes. What Kent wears, the glasses, the business suit, that's the costume. That's the costume Superman wears to blend in with us. Clark Kent is how Superman views us. And what are the characteristics of Clark Kent? He's weak, he's unsure of himself, he's a coward. Clark Kent is Superman's critique of the whole human race. This was taken from Kill Bill, Volume 2. 
you gotta imagine, what was it like when God came down and dressed himself just like us? See, God became man, weak, vulnerable, in the form of Jesus Christ. When he bore our guilt and our sin for the very first time in all eternity, he felt what it's like to be separated from God. See, before that, eternity before that, they were just all together. They didn't need us. They weren't lonely when God was just by himself. But in that moment, when he hung on the cross with every sin on his shoulders, that was the very first time he felt separated from his father. See, the reason this good news of Jesus, the gospel, is good news is because it declares that which is impossible for us has already been done. The reason why we should desperately preach the message of the gospel every chance we get is because it's the only message we have. See, we're so weak. How can we possibly preach about what we can do? We're ridiculously incapable of saving ourselves. What much more saving others? That is why it has absolutely nothing to do with us, but everything to do with Christ. Senator so pastor that um, we were listening to sums up my sentiments perfectly. J.D. Greer says, I praise God that my salvation doesn't depend on how much I love Christ, but how much he loves me. See, all I do is fail God. Every single day, it makes it more apparent to me that I am a sinner. I could never meet his standards. You know, and what's crazy is that we tend to be reluctant to accept God's grace. It's not natural to us, because that's what sin did. It's not natural to love God anymore or to recognize his love for us. We have a hard time accepting that there's nothing we can do. See, the picture is God is carrying you all throughout. And when someone like offers to carry you in real life, that's not very comforting, right? Like, you know, it's really weird. Your first thought isn't like, oh, this is such a lovely feeling. That's not the first thing you think about. The first thing you think is, is this guy gonna drop me? That's why it's so weird this feeling of being carried by God. In every moment, we need Christ to carry us. So this morning, try to consider how much you've truly been forgiven, how much you've been loved. Have you accepted, understood what the gospel means in your life? Have you admit your inability to save yourselves? Have you talked to dad lately? See, this is a perfect time to just call on Jesus, our truth, our hero, our redeemer. See, when the good news of the gospel finally grips your heart, we're given this opportunity to declare it. The way we declare it is through prayer. We talk to God and tell him, like, now I know what it means. Now it's become real.
everything you've done in this book, everything you've done, even in the story in this book and the story in my life, that is now true. So if you feel led to make that declaration at this moment, if this is the first time you guys have seen the gospel in this way, that it's become this real to you, that's what it means. You can do so by just simply coming to him right now and praying. Why don't we just all bow our heads? You know, maybe some of us have been a Christian for a long time, have accepted Jesus when we were four. It doesn't matter. You know, God is looking for open hearts. You know, open hearts to receive his message, his truth. God, we just thank you that now we know it's not about us. It was never about us. In this story, we are so small, but still you chose to love us. The only one who could give us perfect, unending love, never stopping love, chose to give that to us. And now we accept that. We accept the fact that you became man, you became weak, you became like us, so that you could do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That you were perfect because we were so imperfect. God, we thank you. We admit that Jesus came, died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, raised back to life, declared victory against the villain, declared victory against death. In your name we pray, amen.